Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a biographer, novelist and crime writer and the co-founder and director of a literary and arts festival in Wales. His works include Bloody Valentine, a non-fiction account of an infamous miscarriage of justice in Cardiff, and biographies of black power activist Michael X and Welsh singer Dame Shirley Bassey. He grew up in Cardiff and then moved to Camden in London and was active on the punk scene before becoming a music writer, later working for publications including The Face, GQ and The NME. His latest book is C.L.R. James, A Life Beyond the Boundaries, a biography of the revolutionary black historian, pan-African and Marxist campaigner and cricketer and cricket writer. John Williams, John L. Williams, in fact, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hi. What's the L for? Lincoln. John Lincoln Williams. It sounds, it sounds presidential almost. Um, bizarrely, it comes about because, get this, my uh, father's cousin was called Warwick and my grandmother decided she liked the idea of calling uh, her son after a uh, cathedral city and she went for Lincoln. <laughs> So you could quite easily have been John Salisbury Williams. Uh, absolutely, I could have, yeah, Coventry, who knows. Uh, thanks so much for, for talking to us today. And I want to focus primarily on, on C.L.R. James because he is such an influence on so many people, but we know very little about him. We're going to come back to that, though, because we don't know enough about you either, uh, John. And so let's just start with your early life and perhaps the influence of those cathedral cities. Well, I grew up in Cardiff. It's where my family been for generations, you know. From the beginnings of Cardiff becoming a port city, um, my family kind of walked there and ended up with a sort of steel stockholding building uh, business, rather. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it was a quiet, decaying industrial port town when I was growing up. It's gradually turned into something very different these days, you know, the home of the Welsh Assembly and a really uh, buzzing, lively city. But, uh, you know, it was a... A fascinating place to grow up and it has this kind of multicultural history and you know what people call Tiger Bay which was where the family business was and it's like this kind of a sense of this sort of secret history of the city that you know lived in the Cardiff docks which always fascinated me and it's come to have you know quite a, quite an influence on my work thereafter, I suppose. Mm. I mean, you you grew up, I understand, obsessed with music and literature. In fact, you did a, a punk fanzine when you were just a teenager. That's right. I mean, I was just the right age to hit the whole uh, punk rock revolution. You know, we'd been through you know growing up in the seventies. There was this sense of you know you, everyone's older brother was a you know hippie with a mobile disco, and you. You know, as one does, one reacts against, and punk came along. And I love music, but I had absolutely no musical talent, and but quite a lot of ideas. And this was just, you know, the perfect uh, moment for me. And I became completely obsessed with it. Totally uh, gave up on schoolwork, went to London, just seventeen, and uh, you know, got to meet people in bands and stuff. Started a fanzine, and it was, you know, it was an extremely exciting time and one of the great things about it was that you know up to that point if you wanted to be a writer or something you had to I don't know you didn't know one had no idea how you became a writer you you know went to university or something and somehow you got a job on a newspaper but all of a sudden you could just start your own fanzine and just go you know type the thing up and take it and get it photocopied and there you were you were a writer too which you know is I guess how I've <laughs> approached everything ever since. Well your first published book was Into the Badlands. 
That's right, which, um, you know, I, I stayed with music for a while, but gradually, you know, the fact that I was very, very bad at it, um, <laughs> made a couple of records at the beginning of the 80s, and then he just realised, no, you know, this is not what I'm good at. <laughs> I started trying to write about music, and I have done a bit of music writing, but I'm, I mostly find it really difficult, you know, what it's like dancing about architecture or whatever. I mean, I look... You know, finding the words for music is really hard. But at the same time, I started getting fascinated with American crime fiction. I was working in Camden opposite a great bookshop called Compendium Books. And uh, the guys there, you know, I was coming in trying to read, you know, serious literature of the time. And they were saying, well, yeah, you know, all right, Milan Kundra is all right. But have you tried Elmore Leonard? And I tried Elmore Leonard and really never looked back. And I became fascinated with the worlds of American crime writers and started um, reviewing crime crime novels, and then something there was a bit of a buzz around that. I started writing for The Face and The Enemy about crime writers, and ended up and I was obsessed with their worlds. And I was in the pub one one evening talking to my mates from the bookshop, saying, "God, you know, I just love to go and you know to go to uh, El Molina's Detroit or Carl Hyacinth's Miami. The places sound so great." And I had a kind of light bulb moment. Maybe I could write a book where I just went around the states talking to all my favorite crime writers and writing about the worlds they described. And amazingly enough, I managed to persuade a uh, publisher that this was a good idea. And it was just a fantastic trip. It was at the end of the eighties when all over the states met all these great writers and it was just a complete education for me you know both in the, knowing about America and the world but also how to write mm. and I mean one one thing that I've always wondered about I see that one of the people in in that book was James Elroy and I interviewed him a little while ago and of course as we know he, he wrote Black Dahlia and LA Confidential and all these very kind of violent dark novels he told me that he's a born-again Christian is that true Nothing would surprise me with James Elroy. He was... I did, I think, the first interview for a British magazine with him right back in the mid-'80s when The Black Dahlia was about to come out. And it was a, such an odd experience. I almost felt mugged by it because he knew what was good copy and he delivered this interview where I just asked him one question and he just talked for about 10 minutes. And really, that was all I needed. It was all there in perfect... Uh, you know, in perfect paragraphs, the whole story about how his mother had been murdered and how he'd become obsessed with true crime and his, you know, the way his life had gone off the rails and how writing had saved him. But I felt like I was just, you know, a vehicle for his ambition, that he knew where he was going. He knew that writers would love this stuff and I just put it down. So I never know with him what to take seriously and what not, you know, what stick really and what's yeah. really, really, you know, really important. Yeah. He's a very odd character. You then you then went into into fiction uh, with five pubs, two bars and a nightclub. Tell us a little about that. Well, I, actually, my first um, novel was a thing called Faithless, which was set in Camden in the 80s around the kind of music world because I started off, you know, as... as People often do by writing about what you know. And then once I'd done that, I thought, well, I can't carry on. You know, there's only so much to say about the world of uh, post-punk Camden. So I, um, I'd by then written a non-fiction book about this miscarriage of justice in the Cardiff docks. And while that's quite a bleak, serious book, the people I met while researching the book had such extraordinarily vibrant lives which was so much, frankly, more interesting and entertaining to write about than, uh, you know, than my own at that point. I thought, right, well, 
let's try and balance the kind of bleakness of the non-fiction with something that really celebrates and finds the humour in in what might look from the outside like quite bleak lives. So it's a it's basically a book of funny stories about kind of drug dealers, pimps and prostitutes in the Cardiff docks, which I probably couldn't get away with writing right now. Because? Because I am writing about people who are not there. <laughs> Well, not me, I suppose. Mm. And there is, you know, there are, there are, you know, there are justifiable anxieties about about all of that. And publishers, of course, are very nervous about now about uh, who can write about who can write about who. Mm. Well, of course, you did write about Dame Shirley Bassey and also the Trinidadian Black Power activist Michael X. Yeah, both of whom, what what they both have in common is they both lived in the Cardiff docks at uh, various points in their lives. Shirley was born in the Cardiff Docks, but actually grew up in the, um, the steelworkers suburb of Splot, where I lived for a while. And uh, Michael was a uh, he was a sailor who landed up in Cardiff in the early fifties and lived in the docks, where he uh, worked as a sailor when at sea and a pimp while on land. And is an extraordinary character. I mean, they're both. I was fascinated by Michael X, one of these sort of bit part players in the sixties, who I remember as a child hearing about how he'd been hung for murder. And he's a man who knew everyone from, you know, Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael to William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and Leonard Cohen. And uh, the fact that he'd passed through my hometown sort of gave me a way into that life. And when I'd finished writing about him, I was talking to my then publisher who said, well, that was great, John, but why don't you write about someone, you know, Welsh and more famous? And I was thinking about famous Welsh people. And I started thinking about uh, Dame Shirley Bassey, who was easily the most famous person from Cardiff. And I realised I'd just taken her for granted my whole life. She was this sort of strange, glamorous figure who seemed, you know, lived in Monte Carlo and seemed like she should always have come from Monte Carlo, but actually came from Splot. And I thought, God, that's got to be a good story, really. How did that happen? How did she get out of there and become, you know, the fabulous person she became? So I wrote a book about her early life. It stops, really, in the mid-60s when Goldfinger and when she was fully fledged as the Shirley Bassey we know. But the story of how she got there is extraordinary and really makes you think again about what Britain was like in the 50s. Uh, And what was her sort of defining moment? How did she break free, so to speak? Well, it's amazing. In... She was a you know a mixed race teenage single mother living in Cardiff, and she she'd been in a few shows, you know touring reviews. Come back from the last one pregnant and disillusioned, and then she was persuaded to do you know one last show in in Jersey, and she was seen by this uh, manager Svengali, Mickey Sullivan, who just saw something you know you saw what was there and groomed her you know put all what little money he had into you know into teaching her the ways of show business and she and she hit that world of 50 show business just before rock and roll had really hit and she was I guess one of the last people to really become a star before rock and roll and uh, yeah it's a lot down to Mickey Sullivan seeing the potential and then it was down to Shirley seeing her chance to get out of Cardiff and absolutely grasping it with both hands. Mm. Now, what do they know of cricket that only cricket know? Uh, what do we know of CLR James, who, who wrote that line? First of all, tell us why your fascination with him. OK, well, we're going back to the early 80s again, living in London, working in Camden, in a very, you know, in a newly multicultural city. And part of the whole punk thing was a fascination with reggae and, you know, an awareness of 
you know, rock against racism was a big thing at that time. One was very, I was very aware of all of that. I was obsessed with reggae, with you know, dub poets like Linton Kwesi Johnson and a guy a Jamaican called Michael Smith. And there was a TV documentary about um, Mikey Smith where he was filmed going around Brixton. And at one point he goes to talk to this old black guy called CLR James, who I'd never heard of. And they talk about Shakespeare. And James, you know, Mikey Smith is treating Shakespeare like he's a joke. You know, what this is everything he's reacting against. And, and this guy, CLR James, is just horrified, you know. You've got to know your history before you can really change anything. And I thought, well, this is an interesting guy. I hadn't really thought about, think, you know, I've felt, as you do when you're young, that you want to change everything, that everything, you know, history is all, you know, British culture is just stuff to be cast aside because we're going to make a new world. And here was this guy who seemed to be saying something more complicated. So, you know, I went to my local radical bookshop and found there was a book called Black Jacobins that he'd written, which was the story of the Haitian Revolution of the uh, 18th century, which I knew nothing about. Then someone said, well, we don't have it, but there's an, he's also written a book about cricket. And if you like cricket, it's meant to be really good. And I loved cricket. And I'd never thought about cricket. You know, it was almost an embarrassing thing to like at the time. And I went out and got this book called Beyond the Boundary, in which C.L.R. James talks about how cricket, how growing up in Trinidad, going to a school that was again modelled on a uh, British public school, that how much the values of cricket had influenced him. But then he goes on to show how much that the West Indies embraced cricket, but also changed cricket and brought it back to the motherland, to Britain, changed by its experience in the West Indies, that there was this whole, if you like, dialectic between the two. And this absolutely, um, you know, blew my early 20s mind, really, that uh, these things that I liked were not in separate worlds, but actually interacted with each other. And there was a way of seeing even cricket as part of a radical tradition. Absolutely. The way that colonialism changes its subjects, but, but is also changed by them. Absolutely that. And, you know, I found that such a fascinating idea. I ended up going back to college late and I did my um, dissertation on C.L.R. James and John Arlott, the, uh, you know, the great English cricket commentator and the way that Arlott was so popular, the way his way of speaking was, you know, on Test Match Special was so influential around the British colonies. It's, Arlott brought in a more, you know, effectively working class voice into, you know, into the BBC's world of cricket commentary. And I was fascinated to discover that he and C.L.R. James had been friends. And, uh, yeah, that, as I say, that these traditions were informing each other, that you could go back before Arlott to Neville Cardus, who was perhaps the first great British cricket writer. And then before that, you go back to people like William Hazlitt, who I, you know, whose sports writing I knew nothing of until I read C.L.R. James. You know, James showed me my own history as well as his own history. And, and that in fact, they're all the same history. Well, he he started off as a, a young literary man in Port of Spain in Trinidad. That's right. He'd been identified very young as a very, very bright boy, the brightest boy on the island. His father was a headmaster of a little primary school in Trinidad and groomed his son, who was obviously talented, you know, to be the best. The idea was he'd get a scholarship and go to England. But actually, literature really got hold of uh, the young CLR and he decided, you know, he followed his own path. He didn't want to go to England and become a lawyer. He wanted to stay in Port of Spain and be a writer. 
he became part of a little circle of people who were... There's a guy called uh, Alfie Mendez, who's the uh, grandfather of uh, Sam Mendez, the director. And they were best friends, and they had a little literary circle. They put out magazines. They, um, you know, they both wrote novels. They started to get short stories published in London. And eventually, I mean, well, actually, almost by chance, in fact, in some ways, he could easily have stayed in Trinidad the whole while, you know, writing, in, you know, and who knows where his career would have gone. But then he had an invitation to come to uh, to Britain from his friend Leary Constantine, the cricketer, who'd been asked to write his autobiography, and he asked CLR to come to to come to London and give him a hand. And so he, you know, he decided, age thirty, that right, he was going to give it a go, and he uh, came to Britain. Now he is hailed as one of the truly revolutionary voices of the last century. As you write in your introduction, he debated with Trotsky, he was published by Leonard and Virginia Woolf, he inspired Kwame Nkrumah and was a profound influence on the British black power movement. And yet at the time he went relatively unrecognised. Yes, that's right. In the 1930s was perhaps the time when he was most recognised, funnily enough. He he came to, to London, you know, fully formed, extremely well educated. He had already written, he had a novel with him that, that he brought with him. You know, he was an immensely impressive public speaker and he became quickly involved in British politics. In fact, it was in Britain rather than in Trinidad that he really embraced revolutionary politics. He went up with Leary Constantine to uh, Nelson in Lancashire and uh, was enormously impressed by the strength of the you know, the British working class movement. He joined the Labour Party and then he um, you know, became a Trotskyist at a point where he read Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution and that completely you know changed everything for him. So he became part of, you know, British Trotskyists were a small but influential group. He met the uh, publisher, Fred Warburg, who was just starting Secker and Warburg, who uh, really liked CLR's work and commissioned him to write a book on communism, effectively called World Revolution, and then to do the Black Jacobins, his great study of uh, Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution. And, you know, he was, he was something of a figure in Britain in the 30s, but then he was invited over to the States in 39 and for obvious reasons ended up staying in the States during the war. And he got more and more involved in Trotskyist politics, which took him, particularly in America, took him so far from the mainstream that uh, for the next 20 years or so, the only people who really knew his work were people in tiny Trotskyist groups rather than, you know, he wasn't being widely published at all. So then he came back to Britain in the 50s and... Uh, you know, he started writing cricket reports for The Guardian and, uh, you know, publishing magazines here and there, but nothing really very substantial through the 50s. He went back to Trinidad at the end of the decade as Trinidad was preparing for independence and the uh, the Prime Minister, Eric Williams, was an old protégé of CLR's and invited him to come to Trinidad where he, uh, you know, was an advisor for a while till they fell out. Then he came back to uh, London in the beginning of the 60s with Beyond a Boundary, his great book on cricket written, with the last chapters written about um, his experience of cricket back in, the, you know, now he'd been back to the West Indies and the struggle to get the first black captain of the West Indies cricket team appointed. Yeah, he came back to London and Beyond a Boundary was published and that made a stir in cricketing circles, but not really, not really much beyond that. And it was another 20 years, really, where he was... 
you know, he was teaching increasingly, lecturing, writing articles here and there, but very much under the radar and and living partly in the States, sometimes back in Trinidad, moving here and there. So there wasn't, you know, he didn't have an obvious constituency until he came back to Britain for good in the early 80s. He settled in Brixton in a building that was run by the Race Today Collective. And gradually, in his old age, people started waking up to the fact that, you know, here was this remarkable man with this remarkable, you know, history of writing behind him. And people did start to take notice in the 80s. There were quite a few documentaries made, you know, particularly on Channel 4. There was a whole series of lectures he gave on Channel 4. So by the time he died in 1989, there was, you know, people had woken up to what a remarkable writer and man he'd been. Mm. I mean, he's left a tremendous legacy. We mentioned Kwame Nkrumah earlier. Uh, and of course, James really was one of the founders of Pan-Africanism. That's right. I mean, that, it needed to be quite a long book, this one, because he was a man who was, you know, he did so much and in so many different spheres, you know, at the same time as he was engaged, if you like, the quite white world of British Trotskyism in the 30s, he was also heavily involved in what was becoming Pan-Africanism, which was where uh, essentially a lot of students and emigres from the various African colonies were in London and getting together and discussing how they could break free of the shackles of colonialism. And CLR was right in the middle of that, writing papers and so forth. And he was really, he was, you know, the great kind of theorist there amongst um, other people were, you know, stronger as activists, perhaps. But it was CLR who was really, you know, coming up with the plans. Mm. And I mean, one of the things about him was that he was about looking forward rather than looking back, inspiring people to change things for themselves, refusing to see Africans, and he saw Africans across the diaspora. He wanted to to link black people across the world together because of their relationship to their oppressors. But he wanted to inspire those people not to feel like victims, but to feel like the masters of their own destiny. That's absolutely right. He was, you know, he, he was very sick early on, you know, but going back to the 1930s of stories of black suffering, what he wanted was a story that would inspire people, which is why he went to the Haitian Revolution, led by Toussaint Louverture, which was, you know, the first and essentially only really successful slave revolution, where the Haitian slaves, you know, defeated their their French colonial masters and, you know, took control of their own destiny. And he felt this was the story people needed to know, one that they, people could look at and take lessons from it in order to, uh, you know, throw off their own colonial shackles. So it was mm. a book about history, but written with an eye to the future. And I mean, he, he recognised the power of identity politics, but I guess also its limitations. He believed that race was subsidiary to class in politics. That's right. Um, there's a famous quote to the effect that, um, yes, class is the most important thing, and one shouldn't forget that. But if you ignore identity, that's almost as big as a mistake as ignoring class. The fact, you know, you can't take one without the other. But ultimately, a class analysis is the one that's going to lead you to, uh, you know, a revolutionary situation rather than simply relying on identity politics and pretending class doesn't exist. And how do you think his work on Marxism has influenced protest movements today like Black Lives Matter? Well... I suppose what I think, and, and a lot of Jamesians probably wouldn't think this, but what I think is that that's actually less to do with his 
classical Marxist politics and more with the underlying almost anarchist um, element to his thinking. He was very, he was a great believer in spontaneous revolutions from below. He became increasingly cynical about the idea of, you know, a vanguard that would lead people to revolution. He felt that true revolutions came from below. You know, in his last years, he was particularly encouraged and inspired by the Polish uh, Solidarność movement, which was something he saw as a, you know, spontaneously coming from the workers rather than, you know, a brilliant theorist leading the way. And so, you know, I think he would have loved that element of Black Lives Matter that, you know, that was absolutely that, was a spontaneous revolution without any obvious leaders. You know, it came from such a widespread feeling of outrage that people gathered together in a spontaneous way without, you know, and finding their own politics rather than being told by somebody what their politics should be. Mm. Uh, Finally, what do you think that his most lasting legacy, his most important legacy to the world is? I think there's there's two things I'd like to say really. One is his writing. He's a beautiful writer. His you know Beyond a Boundary in particular is such a wonderfully well written book that you cannot. And I think you, its message is so much more powerful because of the beauty of his prose. On a related note, I'd really recommend his one novel, Minty Alley, which he wrote in his 20s and has recently been republished, which is a lovely low-key study of barrack yard life in Port of Spain. Beyond that, I would say that he just offers us a way out of this potential cul-de-sac of identity politics, where you just have endless identities competing for power or for who is the, you know, who has the most victim points. I think his stress on the importance of class but class that you know relates in a dialectical way to identity is the thing we need to learn from and you know can allow us to all organize together in a way that helps all of us john thank you so much i can't recommend this book highly enough and indeed the writings of clr james they've been hugely influential in my own life and i'm quite sure that anybody reading about him will have much to take away from this the book is called a life beyond the boundaries it's by john l williams it's published by constable which is an imprint of little brown You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.